Alright, so we will be in the book of John. Apparently our prayers didn't reach high enough this morning for the technology, I don't know. And a quick overview of the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 7 today. We won't be in chapter 1. But some things to know about the Gospel of John. It was written by the Apostle John, as it you know obviously states. John was the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved. John got to eat with Jesus. John got to walk with Jesus. It makes me wonder what that would have been like personally. Like, was Jesus sarcastic? You know, did he crack jokes? I mean, here is the Son of God in the flesh, and I'm John, and I get to experience life with Jesus closely and personally for three and a half years. I mean, it would have been incredible. And I do think Jesus did play around with his disciples. I mean, here is the the beloved disciple that John claims to be. He, at one point, got so angry at a group of people that he asked Jesus if they could pray for fire to come down and rain upon these people and completely destroy them. And so Jesus gives them the nickname, he and his brother James, the sons of thunder, Boanerges. So he gave them nicknames. Uh, And it's encouraging because somebody who was quick to anger and lost their temper quickly as John and his brother James did to a particular group of people, he's known as the apostle of love. That's how he finishes. And so that's what Jesus does with us. He takes us angry, depressed, anxiety-filled people, and throughout our lives, He creates us to hopefully be known as, as love. That's how the world will know us, our love for one another. And so, about the book of John, if you are discipling anybody, or if you are just now starting to read the Bible and you don't know where to start, start with the book of John. It declares the deity of Jesus Christ, Uh, more clearly than any gospel. It presents it in chapter 1 that he was in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And that's how John begins his, his gospel. And it's pretty interesting too because the way John writes this, he presents Jesus as being in the beginning of all creation. And then in chapter 2, it it shows that Jesus comes onto the scene and He uh, changes, He turns the water into wine. He, He presents His first miracle. And so Jesus is about 30 years of age at this point. And in chapter 3, we have John 3.16, right? The encounter with Nicodemus. And it's pretty interesting. So we're from the beginning of creation. There was Jesus. And then in chapter 2, He comes onto the scene after just being a, a regular carpenter. And he's performing miracles. And then in chapter 3, we have the most probably profound uh, exposition of the gospel itself and the rebirth and the new life. And of course, John 3.16, we all know that. You know, for whoever believes in the Son of God, right, you will have everlasting life. That's why God sent His Son uh, to the world, right? The gospel's for the whole world. And then in chapter 4, we have the woman at the well. You know, Nicodemus was interested in Jesus, but he didn't really make his full commitment until the death of Jesus. But then we have this Gentile woman coming to faith at the well with Jesus. And she was, you know, probably one of the first ones to actually realize, hey, this is the Messiah. This is who we, uh, who we need, right? You know, she didn't have the Old Testament to really look at. She was a Samaritan woman. And so in chapter five, in chapter six, before chapter seven, what we get to today, It's really kind of the rest of the book is how 
do you view Jesus? Do you accept Jesus to be deity? You know, he was God in the flesh. This is what Jesus claimed to be. And this angers people. And so that's kind of the rest of the book of John. Leaders wanted to kill him because of this statement. His own disciples, they start going away. You know, if you're with Jesus and he's teaching about eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, I don't think that would attract a whole lot of people to begin. Again, Jesus was teaching things from the scriptures that the people should have known, but they thought Jesus was going to be this political leader to overthrow Roman government and bring his kingdom now. But he had his first coming to deal away with sin and to make this connection back to God uh, that was in the garden. Chapter seven also tells us that his brothers are offended of Jesus. I mean, imagine growing up with Jesus. Jesus did everything perfectly. You know, if you're the younger sibling, and Jesus, you know, he's perfect. So you got all the blame. You know, Jesus didn't steal the manna. <laughs> Jesus didn't, you know, knock something down or whatever it might be. So it would have been hard living with Jesus. And then all of a sudden he starts claiming to be God. So now he has all these crowds of people following him. And it would be a little bit difficult to be a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. They were embarrassed by him. And in John chapter 7, we are actually towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7. This is where all Jewish men were required to attend. And it was celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, Tishrei in the Hebrew. I'm pretty sure I just butchered that pronunciation as I almost butchered that word as well. But you get what I'm saying. All right, this was around October, October 15th. It's fall time. And we're less than six months away from his crucifixion. And then that's where we find ourselves in the scripture. Jesus is coming to uh, what he calls his time is, is, is come. And before this, it was my time has not yet come. But now his time has come to pretty much do away with uh, the sin of the world. And so that's where we are in John chapter 7, verse 37. And it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And to kind of illustrate this, I'd like to start with a story if you don't mind. You really don't have a choice. You're sitting down. I'm up here. So there was this man. Okay, He was wandering in a desert. And now he's dying of thirst. He's been out there for days. But then fortunately, there was a man who was riding a camel. And he comes up to him. So now he's like, yes. Finally some help. And the man on the camel says, I'll sell you a necktie for $4. Here's a man dying of thirst. I don't have four. Why would I want to buy this necktie? That doesn't help me. I'm dying of thirst here. And the man on the camel says, you know what? I'll make you a deal. I'll sell you two for $7. And the dying man couldn't stay anymore. He, you know, he's dying of thirst. And so he says, you know, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. And so he musters up all his strength and he continued on his way through this desert where he found this beautiful oasis in the middle of the desert. There's palm trees. There's servants. There's a restaurant. There's ribeye steaks, whatever you want. And so this dying man, he just absolutely just stumbles in and the first person he meets is the head manager. You know, he's asking for water. I'm dying of thirst. 
I need water. Do you have any water? And so the waiter says, I'm sorry, but to be admitted into this oasis, you need a necktie. Now, that's an absurd little story, but it does kind of illustrate what we're going to talk about today because it gets repeated in life, this, this story, because everybody has the ability to have their thirst quenched, to have that satisfaction in your soul, but people are standing around talking about something as pointless as neckties. And we kind of miss the satisfaction of Jesus in things that don't matter in this world. In staff meetings, we read a book for uh, just devotional time. And we're going through this one book, and it gave the definition of failure. And failure is being successful at things that don't matter. And that was really eye-opening to me. Because you can be successful at so many things in life. But if you don't find your success and ground your success in Jesus, in the kingdom of God, then what is life about? Because those things will wither away, but Jesus, he lasts forever. And so here Jesus in John chapter 7, he's giving one of the most beautiful invitations to anyone who would believe in him. The deepest thirst of your lives can finally be quenched. But then, you know, people are just standing around talking about neckties. It's like standing next to an artesian well, here is Jesus, and then there's people just dying of thirst. And we have the red letters in our Bibles, hopefully. Uh, you know, Jesus is speaking. But this particular section deserves to be pretty much written in gold. You know, if anybody thirsts, come to Jesus. And what more comforting truth is there for a thirsty and dry society in a world like than this? This is the greatest invitation. This is probably underlined or highlighted in a lot of Bibles today. And that's what I would do if you haven't yet. But it, the Bible, it's not about how we mark it, but it's about how the Bible marks us. You know, we need to truly understand what is going on to live this out. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because if we claim to be Christians, to be a whole Christian, you have to go through the whole Bible. That's why we do it. And to truly understand these verses, we need to go through them. And if it isn't understood, then it isn't lived out. And there's a principle here for victorious Christian service. And a lot of the times, Christian will say, oh, it's not me, it's completely the Lord. It's all the Lord. And this is true, but a lot of the times that's a cop-out to do nothing. You know, you just leave it all up to the Lord and then you're not engaged. You just kind of sit on the sidelines. You know, it's always the Lord. It's never me, which is half true, but it's also false. Yes, God is the source, but he has to look for channels to work through. That's how the church works. And taking a look at these verses, which we only have three verses today. Aren't you so glad? Not a whole chapter, just three verses. Okay, the new guy is going to make it easy for you. And so looking at this verse is God, Jesus, is telling that we, you and I, the church, are his channels in which he works through. And this is a perfect illustration of the divine and the human nature working together to quench the thirst of this world. And it's only three verses. Jesus even made it even more simpler to understand it in these three verses. In these three verses, verse 37 is an invitation. Okay? Then verse 38 is a promise or proclamation. And then verse 39 is the explanation of the promise. It's also interesting that Jesus gave this sermon in the midst of a great feast. So this is probably one of the shortest sermons that is in Scripture. 
Jesus didn't really have slides. He didn't have worship at the beginning. He just had two points of interest. No illustrations, no conclusion. He just gets straight to the point. Are you thirsty? If you are, then come. Rivers of living water will flow from you. And so in verse 37, we have to understand that there are three feasts that all the Jewish people had to attend if they lived in Israel. And in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, I'll read it for you. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what is going on in chapter 7 of John, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. That is what all the males had to go do. That is part of the Jewish law. And Jesus is abiding in the law by being there as well, right? He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. From chapter 7, verse 2, at the beginning of this chapter, we are told it is the Feast of Tabernacles is underway. And to truly understand these verses we're going through, we need to understand the background or the setting in which Jesus was in when he made these claims. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus called this the most joyous festival because of the way it was celebrated as these Jewish people imagined what it was like for their forefathers to be guided by God in the wilderness. So this reminded them of their exodus from Egypt, uh, their time in the wilderness where God provided everything for them. So in a sense, the Feast of Tabernacles was a fun way to do church. But it's also important to us prophetically because according to the book of Zechariah in chapter 14, if you didn't know this, this was pretty mind-blowing for me to understand, us as believers in the millennial kingdom of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, we get to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this with Jesus. Every year, we get to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. So if it doesn't make any difference to you historically, it will prophetically one day because it says in that passage that the nations of the world will celebrate the festival of tabernacles in Jerusalem during Christ's millennial kingdom. And people from all over the country, all over the world in Jesus' day would come to celebrate this. Thousands of people would be gathered in Jerusalem. And it was celebrated again to celebrate the deliverance from Egypt and God's provision for them in the wilderness. And this celebration would last for eight days. So imagine if you, as your family, just gathered for eight days, took off a week of work for this celebration, and you guys just stayed in huts. You got your little Coleman camper, and that's what you stayed in for seven days. No AC, uh, no bathrooms, you know. And then you're just huddled together with everybody. So if you're like one of, um, what is it, um, an introvert, this feast would be a little awkward for you. You'd be, you'd be sleeping side by side with probably some random guy, you know. Or if you're an extrovert, this would be perfect for you. You just get to talk and talk and hang out with people and talk about how God is working in your lives. And those, so this is what they did. So for seven days, they built these little huts or booths. And it would just reminded the people of the wilderness wandering that God brought them through the desert in tents. You know, the desert wasn't their permanent home. They were waiting for something more in the promised land. And so what would we see if we went and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles? We'd see the booths, okay? But we'd also see just thousands of people uh, with something in their right hand and then something in their left. 
Uh, in the left hand, as you can see up there, would be this like citrus fruit. Um, in the Levitical law, chapter 23, verse 40, it tells them to bring uh, a citrus fruit. And it really just spoke of uh, the land in which they lived. It was full of provision. It was the land of milk and honey. So it represented that God provided from that land. And in the right would be branches. They were told to take branches to build the booths. And they would take these palm branches and march through the temple, waving them along with the fruit, thanking God for the provision. So am I working with Cardinals fans or Cubs fans here? This is important. Cubs? Okay. Anyways, we've been to a professional sporting event at some point. Yes? Is it, you guys remember the boom whackers? You know, like the inflate, boom, and just like loud noises. So that's kind of what like this was. They'd wave those palm branches. The leaves would be rattling. You'd have the kids running around like crazy. You know, everybody was unified. They didn't care if you're a Cardinals or Cubs fan. Sorry if you're both right now, but they were just celebrating God with these, with these branches and this fruit, and it was just a good time. They just had fun. And they did this, you know, to commemorate as God was the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day to guide them through the wilderness. But then the priest who kind of oversee this, he would do something very interesting during this time. So people are celebrating, but the high priest and the ministers would do something interesting. So every day, the priest, he would take this large gold vessel holding a little bit more than a quart of water. And as you can hopefully see up there, he'd walk from the Temple Mount down into the old city of Jerusalem in the city of David. This wasn't a paved path. Okay, it probably would have been pretty rocky. And he definitely wasn't wearing all-terrain clogs by Crocs to get down there. You know, he wasn't wearing hokas. He wasn't wearing your Timberlands or whatever. You know, he probably just had on some sandals. Uh, he might have rolled his ankle once or twice getting down there. So it was a steep walk. It, was a, it took a while. And so he'd go to the Pool of Siloam. And he would fill up that cup and then walk back up to the temple. And he'd do this every day. Imagine if he got down there, got the water, and three-fourths of the way up, he, he slips and spills all the water. What's he going to do? <laughs> he's he's got to perform this ritual, so he got to go back down, fill it back up, and walk back up. Okay. So once he made it up, he'd go to the great stone altar that was inside of the temple area, and he would ascend on the right side of the ramp, and he would take this pitcher and throw it on the base of the altar, and then there would be three blasts from a trumpet or a shofar. And on the third blast, the people of the area, there would be thousands of people, and then they would cry out this text of Scripture found in Isaiah 12, verse 3. And it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then this was in commemoration that God quenched their thirst in the wilderness and that He provided water from the rock. They were thirsty. God quenched their thirst. And they did this ritual every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. But in verse 37, it says this is the last day. This is the great day of the feast. This is when even more people would come to this gathering. This is when your Christian service uh, people would come. Your Easter's, your, your Christers would come into service. So everybody was here on this day. It was the eighth day. This is like game seven. All right. This is, this is it. This is, this is the big deal. And they would actually walk around the altar six times. And then they'd walk around a seventh time and they would sing praises for God's provision. And if you remember walking around something seven times, the battle of Jericho before they entered the land, okay, 
Why the Battle of Jericho? Well, because that's the battle that ended the wilderness march. This was the first town that they took in the land promised by God, and it ended their wilderness journeys. Their thirst was quenched. And so in this particular scene in which Jesus spoke, the crowd would have been doing this ritual. They would have been marching around the altar. And it builds up anticipation for the priest to pour water on the altar. Because when the priest would walk up, the crowd would go silent. Just imagine thousands of people going silent where you could hear a pin drop. And then he'd pour the water. And after that, people would cry out. You will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And it was just a, a joyous time and an amazing time to be a part of. I'm sure there were people there like, and you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. You know, just like sometimes when you come into church and you've had a rough day, maybe it was a tough time getting the kids out of bed, and you know, it's like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And then you have the people, the joy of the Lord. You know, and so it's just everybody it was here. It was just a crazy time. And that's what Jesus, that's the environment he's in right now. Okay? And this is the exact point where Jesus decides to speak up. You know, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus is watching the whole crowd. And as the people were celebrating God's provision, Jesus is watching. But notice, he doesn't just say this, this radical statement. Jesus stood up and he cried out. He didn't just turn to his disciples. He didn't just turn to Peter and go, hey, you know, if, if you're thirsty, come to me, I got you. You know, he didn't go to doubting Thomas and be like, hey, man, it's okay, I got you. You know, this wasn't a whisper. He cried out. So that thousands of people could hear him. So I want you to imagine this again. The crowd is marching around the altar. They're going absolutely berserk. The priest is going up the altar and they hush. There's nobody talking. He's pouring the water out. And as he's about to pour the water out, before they could cry out the scripture, Jesus stood up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, all eyes were on Jesus. Everybody heard him. Says, let him come to me and drink. And so you, you would know that every head would just go, Woof, you know, just like all turn towards Jesus. I bet his disciples were kind of like, oh crap, you know, like I don't want to be seen. Everybody was looking in this direction. Now they weren't looking at the religious religion of the ritual being poured on the altar, but they were looking on the relationship that was possible with Jesus Christ. Jesus is presenting this. It's not about the ritual, but it's about me. Everybody's looking at Jesus. And before the people could say, you draw uh, from the wells of salvation, you draw from the waters of the wells of salvation, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, do you see the significance of what Jesus is, is presenting and saying to these people? These people were in the middle of thanking God for quenching their thirst in the wilderness. And now Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So here's Jesus, their Messiah. He's presenting himself with this incredible invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so when he said this, this sent out a shockwave through Jerusalem. Thousands of people hear this with mixed opinions as it is today when people hear Jesus. It's mixed opinions. Verses 40 through 44 tells us that it caused a huge division. It says, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, you know, truly, this is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. 
But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Can somebody really from Charleston, Illinois, plant a church? You know, like they were just so shocked. I mean, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was from? And so there was a division among the people because of Jesus. And now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. In, in Luke, in chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus tells us himself that he did not come to bring peace, but division. John 7, verse 46, it says, the officers answered, no man has ever spoke like this man. I mean, do you see the impact of the words that Jesus has as they were pouring out the water? He says, I'm the source of life. I'm the source of your satisfaction. All the religion and the rituals that you've done, it's pointing to me. I'm it. That's what he's saying. And from the invitation, we see this radical claim. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God because in a couple of chapters later on, they say that you're a man who keeps claiming to be God. It's pretty obvious. And people who say, well, Jesus never really claims to be God in the Bible. I don't know if they're reading the same Bible. Jesus says it all the time. He may present it in a way that's different to our Western mind and culture, but he's definitely claiming to be the God of the Bible. And Jesus is claiming to be the satisfaction of all humanity. And this claim is either for a deranged lunatic or it's a claim of God himself. There's no in-between. You can't look at the claims of Jesus and examine them and just come to the conclusion, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's a good guy. You know, historically, yeah, he was there. I think he meant well. He's a mighty prophet. Jesus left zero room for that. Jesus is claiming to be God, the Hebrew God of the Bible, Yahweh. Either Jesus was God or he was delusional. Just look at the claims. He says, I am the resurrection, the life, the truth, and the way. Like after the resurrection, Thomas was doubting him. He says, he calls him Lord and, and God after he sees the holes in the mark of his hands. And Jesus accepts Thomas's worship. Jesus says, that before Abraham was, I am. I mean, do you remember who God said he was? He said, I am who I am. Back in Exodus chapter 3, he gave the covenant name to Moses. I am who I am. And in John 8, Jesus lays claim to that name before Abraham was, I am. Jesus assumes the divine name of God in that chapter before these religious believers. And here in John 7, Jesus says, I am Jehovah, I am Yeshua. That's his name, Joshua, or Jesus. That's, that's his name. He's claiming to be Yahweh is salvation. That's what his name means. That's what Jesus means. He is the eternal spring. Paul says in Corinthians that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. Saying Jesus was a good, is just a good man is, is nonsense. He's always claiming to be God and his claims are either true or they're false. His claims, there's two possibilities. Either he knew they were false, which would make him a liar and make Jesus a hypocrite, or he didn't know his claims were false. Again, if, if, if these are false claims, he knew they were false and he was a liar, or he didn't know his claims were false. Let's say he just really believed he was God, but he didn't know what he was saying was false. I mean, that makes him a lunatic if he's not really God. 
He said, I can forgive sins. I can raise the dead. I am God. No one makes these claims or even dares to make these claims unless they are God or they're deranged. But Jesus is the God man. He is God in the flesh. He is he is 100 percent man, while also at the same time, 100 percent God. And to kind of, I guess, illustrate this impact. Let's imagine for a second if the president of the United States, you know, he gets on television for a press conference. Talking about whatever. And then at the very end, he goes, by the way, I am the resurrection and the life. I have the power to forgive sins. I am God in the flesh. Now, the cameras would immediately just like turn off and you would hear, stay tuned for a commercial break. Like it would just be crazy if somebody would make that proclamation. You know, then they would usher him off in a white jacket. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy to make these claims. And Jesus, he stands up in the midst of the temple in front of thousands of people and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, personally, if you've established the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be, you can move on. That, that is beautiful. It's an easy, simple invitation of Jesus Christ. And if you're searching this world for possessions, for money, or whatever provides you tempor- temporary happiness, it, it all is also just empty. Right, Jesus in John chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And this is true of every pursuit in life, every experience, the experience of pursuing pleasure, happiness, money, uh, whatever it is, you're going to thirst again. But notice the progression in verse 37. It's thirst, come and drink. And so one must be thirsty in order to come to Christ. And you're not going to drink unless you go, I'm thirsty. So you have to acknowledge you have a need in order to seek to alleviate that need. You know, people don't come to Christ because they don't believe they need to. People think they can get by with just good deeds or just coming to church or whatever that might be. But no, they need to come to Jesus. They need to have that relationship with Jesus. And so that's the first stage is to become thirsty, to have the desire to be in a relationship with Christ, to know that your sin, you can't do anything about it, but you need Christ. Uh, you need Jesus to cleanse you of your sin. And then it takes you to the second stage. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So now you have the decision. Are you going to cooperate with your will with the invitation of Jesus? And if you're thirsty and haven't taken in Jesus, you need to quit. You need to stop running away from Jesus. You need to stop complaining about life isn't good. Life's a bummer. You know, I'm always thirsty all the time. Just take a drink. Take a stop at Jesus. So he has the invitation. Then you have to drink in the Lord. You have to take in his salvation. But then there's this third step. You got to drink like here's the opportunity. You have to take him in. You have to let him be the savior of your of your life by faith. You have to admit there's a need. You have to come to the fountain, but you actually have to stoop down and bring the water up. You have to drink it. Nobody can do that for you. And it's great to know that you have a need, but it's great to know that you can come somewhere to get that need met. But then it's much greater when you actually take a drink and it's universal. It's for anyone. There's no qualification. You don't have to be a certain race, a certain background. You don't have to have religious knowledge or anyone male female anyone rich poor anyone again john three sixteen. for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and then this leads into the promise we have in verse 38 the promise he who believes in me as the scripture had said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water 
That's a pretty strange thing to hear at first. But it is also true. Out of your heart will flow this source, this this Holy Spirit will just flow out of you. Again, Jesus says, I am the source, you are the channel. And it's true that we will be satisfied in Jesus, but that's not the point here. Because Jesus is saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and he who comes to me will have his thirst quenched and be satisfied. Again, you'll be satisfied, but you're satisfied spiritually. But if you just stop with just that, you're missing out on the fullness of Jesus. You know, this is not the promise, the point of the promise that Jesus is making. The point isn't that you're going to be satisfied because that's already been established in John chapter 4, verse 14. The point is you'll become a vessel. Jesus is speaking about serving here. This isn't really necessarily about salvation, but serving the Lord. The point is you become this vessel. You become a channel. The, the life of Christ will flow from you in the form of serving the church, uh, discipleship, doing life with people. Your life just becomes a river. And this is the point where a lot of modern Christianity is, is lacking because a lot of the times in Christian teaching, it's just about come to Jesus and be saved. And then they kind of just stop there. You know, Jesus has come to save us and satisfy us, period. Come to Jesus, be satisfied. You know, I hope you're happy to you have a good day. Have a good Sunday. Let's go to lunch, you know. And then, oh, when it's convenient for you, when it's convenient on your time, could you do something for the kingdom of God? You know, we claim Jesus to be Savior, but if we claim Him to be Lord and Savior, as Romans tells us, He is Lord and Savior. And just thinking that it's okay for just Jesus to be your Savior, not your Lord, it's, it's a very self-centered way of living because then you're just focused on yourself. And Jesus is saying the opposite. He who believes in Me will become a spring, a fountain of water will gush from your life. And at this point in the passage, not only will you have your needs met, but you'll be spiritually satisfied, but that spiritual satisfaction will pour in the life of others. Gushing rivers of water. And when people look at churches trying to see what the church has to offer, or people go church hopping, whatever that you want to call it, that's kind of the wrong way of seeing of how a church could fit you. Instead, you need to ask, what can I offer the church? What can you offer the church? Because Jesus said the experiences we are to be having is for all of us to be sources of living water, not just one source. It just can't be the pastor and the family. Sure, they do a ton of the work, but we're a body. We're supposed to be working together. And I heard it said that Christianity is boring and useless if all we do is just sit on the sidelines and don't get in the game of serving the Lord and His church, which is true. If Christianity was, we just come here one Sunday, one day a week, and we just sit there for an hour, and we don't serve or get connected in the community or serve the body, then it's really kind of pointless. Like we, we are created to serve as the body of Christ. And if you're a Christian, ask yourself the question, are you a fountain? Verse 37, Jesus is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the satisfaction and the source in verse 37. Verse 38, Jesus is talking about us. It needs to flow out from our lives into the lives of other people. And this, it really kind of boils down to three kinds of faith. There's faith of the unsaved man. It's a false faith. This is like, I believe that there's a supreme being. I believe 
that there is a God out there that, you know, he sent Jesus. It's more of an intellectual pursuit. You know, he is knowledgeable about all the facts, but has zero relationship. And James describes this. It says that, you know, the devils believe and tremble. Uh, The devil believes, but the devil isn't going to heaven. You know, he believes that God is real, but he's not going to heaven because he has a false faith. He's there's no relationship there. It wasn't a faith that changed him. He actually rebelled against God. There's a saving faith. There's a firm faith. It's born again. It's a trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. There's a lot of born again Christians, uh, but they never have the, the spirit flow out of them. And Jesus says we don't keep our faith inside. Rather, we let it flow from you like a river. So people have this new life in them. They just haven't struck the rock to allow it to flow to others. And then there's the flowing faith described in verse 38. And here lies the problem with many believers because it's about them being satisfied, not about how God can flow through them to satisfy others. It's all about me. I want to be happy. You know, I want to be saved. I want to be satisfied. He tells us to be a fountain, not a reservoir or a pond or a little puddle. You know, we're supposed to be active. The spirit flows through us. And we are to convey what we have received in terms of satisfaction to others. You say, well, how can I do that? I can't save another person. Jesus saved me. I tasted the fountain. I can't provide that for others. Well, yes and no. You can't save them, but you can make them thirsty. Your life can uh, point them to what can satisfy them. Again, Jesus describes this as being salt of the earth. And you know, what does salt do? It creates a thirst. And so by your lifestyle, you can make this Jesus thing seem pretty attractive. And so I hope you don't have a false faith today. I hope you actually trust and know Jesus. I hope you at least have a saving faith, but I also hope that you have an active faith, a flowing faith. So you're saved, you're satisfied, but go follow that through. Be saved and satisfied and now be sent. Do something about that satisfaction. And then in verse 39, we have the explanation. It's it's what we are supposed to do. He's speaking of the Spirit here, and it hasn't come yet because Jesus wasn't Uh, exalted. He wasn't glorified yet. Uh, Jesus had sent the promise of the Holy Spirit when He left. And in John 14, He describes the Holy Spirit to His disciples. In John 14, Jesus says this to His disciples. John 14, verse 15. He says, If you love Me, keep My commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that being the Holy Spirit, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Okay, so there's a twofold relationship with the Spirit. Okay, He's around you at all times. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. It's the Spirit of God. He's around you. Before you came to Christ, He was convicting you. He was wooing you to Jesus. He was always pointing you to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus and you accept Him as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God resides inside of you. But then there's this third relationship of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the Spirit is around you at all times. The Spirit is within the believer But then there is this power of the Holy Spirit, this dunamos, this dynamic power of the Spirit coming upon you and pouring out in your life to others. And so this actually happened because in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, we have 
the Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost. And Peter, he gives this speech. And at the end of his his speech, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, he was around Jesus. The Holy Spirit was around him. He became a believer, and the Holy Spirit was in him. And then Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And when that did, he went around preaching, and this dynamic preaching led to 3,000 people to be baptized in one day. And this Peter, he's a great example. He's, it's encouraging because the Spirit empowered him to do this. Because in the flesh, Peter tried chopping some dude's ear off in the garden. Peter was obnoxious. He spoke up when he shouldn't have. But then empowered by the Spirit, it's the same guy. But it's, it's the Spirit that changed him. And it was an overflowing during that, that sermon. And so my question to you is, are you a fountain? Are you letting the Spirit flow from your life or is it stuck inside of you? Maybe you, you haven't even really acknowledged that the Spirit can do that. You know, so I, I would encourage you guys to make it a practice in your prayer life to just ask the Spirit to fill you up. Holy Spirit, fill me up today to do your work or whatever that might be. Because throughout life, we leak. You know, we, we, we get involved in the world and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's up to you. It's your choice on how to live with the Spirit inside of you. And so Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that same spirit that was upon Peter at Pentecost was upon Jesus when he stood up to the crowd in front of thousands here in the scriptures. And it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And it is the same spirit that empowers us to serve Jesus in his church today. So in this chapter, thousands of people were looking at Jesus when he made this claim. And some say, you know, Jesus isn't worth my time. You know, I, I sure, he says that, but who cares? And so their hearts are hardened. And some say, you know, he is Lord and Savior, and they accept him with open hearts. And the promise was to everybody that you could be a channel for the Lord to work in and through you. And so, are you thirsty? Would you like Jesus to fill you up so that you can be this outpouring of his Spirit to the world? So go to Jesus, drink and serve in your church. Let the Spirit pour forth from your life. And that is abundant life. is serving your church, your community, and getting Jesus into areas of the world where it needs it. And that's in your backyard. It's, it's in your community. There's a college that is going to need tons of Jesus uh, as college starts up here soon. So I encourage you to be that. Pray for the Spirit to fill you up. And may the Spirit outpour from your life in, river, in living water, torrents. It should be gushing from you. And just pray for it. Ask for it. And the God is willing to give to all who ask. And so we'll end with that. Hopefully that was encouraging. I can see a lot of people are still awake. So congratulations. We made it through. Let's pray. Father God, just want to thank you so much for today. Thank you for the grace of Woodlawn Chapel having me here. And letting me and my wife you know, stay here with uh, you know, hospitality and love. Lord, thank you so much for this place. Thank you for... Uh, you know, having these people endure through John chapter 7. Thank you so much for the promise. Lord, I pray that, you know, we can take 
one thing away from today and say we know Jesus a little bit better than we did yesterday. And Lord, that's a win. You know, may this church be filled with your Holy Spirit. May these people uh, see an area of need and go fill it. Uh, Lord, may they just serve. And may they, you know, it's a get to. It's not a have to. You know, jobs, it's a have to. We have to do things in life. But with Jesus, it's a get to. And what a beautiful get to it is because of what Jesus had to do for us to get back to the Father. So, Lord, we just thank you for today. Thank you for this message. Uh, Lord, just fill us up with your spirit as we get to worship in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.